Ready for you, you're welcome to go at this time. I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, Luke 11:14. And while you're turning there and finding that, I'm going to begin reading that for us. You can follow along. Luke 11:14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house... His possessions are undisturbed, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. You know, deliverance was a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Deliverance and healing, setting the captives free, proclaiming uh, liberty to those in bondage, the forgiveness of sin, the restoration of broken lives, that was kind of the heart and soul of his mission. In fact, he declares that himself. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. And we tend to think of the word save in a very narrow and restricted sense of of being forgiven and saved from our sins to go to heaven. But the word save is much broader than that. It means much more than that. It means to, to be... Uh, recovered, to be restored, to be made whole again, to, to be brought back to the, to the rightful condition, to be cleansed, to be freed, to be released. Jesus' ministry was, was focused on bringing people back to wholeness. That's what He uh, wanted to accomplish. And so it's no doubt, uh, it's not surprising that as He went around, uh, and encountered people that had demonic problems, that deliverance was one of the, the hallmarks of his ministry. Uh, he would 
cast out the demons whenever he uh, came upon them. And yet on this occasion, we find that this deliverance resulted in a mixed response. On the one hand, here's a, here's a man who is mute. Matthew tells us he was also deaf, and those often go together. A person that can't hear has a hard time learning to speak, and so oftentimes those two problems uh, you know, travel in pairs. And Jesus encounters him and discerns that the problem is a demonic problem, and he cast out the, the mute spirit, the spirit causing the mute or the, or the inability to speak that problem. And as soon as he did, this man, without any um, speech therapy, without any training, without any uh, recovery time, immediately begins to speak. He can hear clearly and he can speak clearly. And the crowd is just astounded. I mean, their initial reaction is, wow. But then someone in the crowd looks at this and says, ah, he does this by the power of Beelzebul. That's how he accomplishes this. And so all of a sudden there's a conflict, there's a mixed reaction, and some of them are saying, well, give us a sign, prove to us that you're really from heaven. Like, Healing a deaf mute is not evidence, but anyway, this is this is the reaction of the crowd. It's it's a mixed bag, and so Luke takes this opportunity to recall this narrative to point out to us that as Jesus moved closer and closer to the cross, the the reaction to his ministry uh, more and more polarized people. There were those who really wanted to follow him. The more they saw, the hungrier they were uh, to be in his company. And there were those who dug in their heels and continued to resist him to the point that as time went along, uh, they began to plot and scheme to uh, have him crucified. I'm glad that Luke felt it was important to share uh, this event with us and to tell us uh, the things that transpired because it gives us a lot of insight into the kingdom and the power of God. It tells us a lot about Jesus' ministry. In fact, there are so many different things in this passage. uh, We could go in in dozens of directions uh, and spinoffs. There's just so much here. But as I prayed about this and thought about this passage and and, and wanted to distill it down to what is really the, the heart and soul of the message here. Um, I began to realize that the focus of the passage is, is the confrontation of the power of God with the powers of darkness and the deliverance that that effects. And then the, the, the corollary, the second uh, part of it is that when that deliverance comes, it is a precious thing to be cherished and embraced and and held on to. And uh, hence uh, my title, Nature Abhors a Vacuum. Jesus has not made us free just simply to empty us, but so that we can be filled uh, with His presence. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about demonology, but I want to spend enough time that we can draw some of the 
uh, the, the, the information that is here out and, and be more understanding of what's going on. You notice as we have encountered different situations thus far in Luke's Gospel and also other Gospels about uh, demonic deliverance is that many times what is treated as demonic in the Scripture appears to us in our 21st century Western mentality as simply being a physical malady, a, a normal kind of disease or problem. Uh, for example, the boy that uh, the father brought to the disciples. You remember they couldn't do anything for him, but <clears throat> Jesus comes off the mountain and, and casts the demon out of him. And we're told that the way this spirit manifested was uh, it would take uh, control of the boy and throw him on the ground and he would begin to convulse and, and have um, seizures and sometimes it would throw him in the water and threaten to drown him. Sometimes he would fall in the fire. And uh, for many people looking back on that, they say, well, this is a classic case of epilepsy. I mean, this boy's having epileptic seizures. That's, what, that's what's going on here. This is a classic case of epilepsy. Uh, we take the, the case of the woman who had the spirit of infirmity, the demon of sickness. <clears throat> we look at that and say, well, well she just had a, a problem that happens to people. It, it was something that was uh, not, not that uncommon. It's not, it's not that unusual. And so... Um, we say, well, she was sick, and they, they called it a demon. Or we take the Gadarene who's wandering around in the tombs, and you can't keep clothes on him, and he's cutting himself and, and doing all kind of things. Well, well, how many people do you read about today that behave in similar matters, that, that, manners, that inflict cuts on themselves, and they do all kinds of things to their body, and um, they might run around naked if they thought they could get away with it, for all I know. And we tend to look at that and say, well, they have uh, some kind of stress uh, syndrome or they have schizophrenia or they have uh, extreme uh, bipolar disorder with um, other kinds of delusions and whatever. And, and, and we now understand these things better than they did in the first century. And we're smarter people. And we know that those people back then were just ignorant and they tend to see everything in terms of some demon or some supernatural power, but we've come to understand that these are normal disease processes. And um, there's, a, there's a prevalence of that kind of thinking. The reality is, is that there are really demons in the world today, and there are sick people in the world today. And some people have natural disease, and some people have demonic problems. And sometimes they look very similar. Many people today in the West tend to read these events in the Bible and they kind of chalk them up to, to ancient superstition. But there's no way in the world that Jesus is going to deceive us. It is impossible for God to lie. And if the Scripture presents these cases as being demonic in origin, then we can be certain that there are demonic problems that mimic epilepsy or mimic schizophrenia or mimic um, deafness and muteness and other kinds of issues. In fact, practically any disease that you can think of can be caused 
from a natural process or either directly or indirectly caused by a demonic spirit. And so as we read the passages that we come across like this, uh, it requires discernment to understand uh, what is natural and what is supernatural. In either case, though, I want to point out that Jesus met the problem head on and brought freedom and deliverance because whether we're naturally sick or whether we're demonically bound... Both of those realities have a common origin. They are a result of sin that is in the world that has come about by Adam and Eve's rebellion and the whole world kind of being uh, brought under a curse and turned over to uh, satanic power through his deceptive efforts. And no matter what we look at today in terms of human malady, The common source of that is sin. And it is Jesus' mission to confront the powers of darkness, the power of wickedness, the power of Satan, with the power of God to effect salvation and deliverance. And so as we get into this passage, we discover that his purpose is to release the captives whatever the situation, and to bring freedom to them. And so, as he delivers this man from this spirit that has rendered him unable to speak for who knows how long, perhaps all of his life, we don't know. The crowds initially express amazement, but then some of them become skeptical, and some of them who are developing this hostile uh, spirit call out and say, Ah, you're just doing that by the power of Beelzebul. And Beelzebul was essentially the prince of demons, but it's a synonym for Satan. So what they were really saying to Jesus was, You're in league with Satan. It's his power that's enabling you to cast demons out. You know, what kind of logic is that? And that's exactly what Jesus confronts them with. And then some others of them say, give us a sign. Give us some absolute proof that we will know for sure that you are coming from God. Well, the truth is, uh, we we happen to know how the story ends. Uh, They didn't believe the signs either. Jesus ultimately, uh, in in our next passage, deals with that with the sign of Jonah. And the truth is, when he rose from the grave, they paid off the soldiers to cover that up. So they weren't going to believe even if they had the most dramatic sign possible. But um, as they begin to confront Jesus with this, Jesus rebuts their argument. And it goes kind of like this. He says, think about it. How long do you think Satan's kingdom would last if he incited civil war within his own ranks. How is it possible that by the power of Satan, I deliver people from the power of Satan? What sense does that make? And oh, by the way, you have exorcists in your midst, your own sons, 
your own uh, spiritual leaders and they cast out demons, how do they do it? You don't have any more evidence for them than you have for me. Are they doing it by the power of Satan? And then he tells a story. He says, let's imagine a house that is occupied. It's been taken over by a strong man. And he has come in and he has taken uh, over this house and he is wearing his armor. And he is uh, using his armor and his power to keep his possessions secure. And he said as long as he's in charge, all of his possessions are safely uh, in his control. And then, someone who is stronger than he is comes along. And the one who is stronger takes away his armor, overpowering him. And he throws him out. And he liberates the house. And he restores it to its rightful ownership, is what's implied in the passage. And he says, in essence, I'm the strong one. I'm the stronger one. I'm coming and I'm finding a house that has been occupied by a strong man who is fully, fully armored and he is protecting what he has taken possession of. And he's holding it in, in his control. But I am stronger. And when I come in, I bring the power of God. Notice what he says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God is actually a reference to the Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 8 when Moses has been confronting the Egyptian magicians and everything they do, he's able to do something even more, more powerful. And um, after a while they say he's doing this by the, by the finger of God, um, meaning that he has the power of God behind his action. And Jesus is saying, I come in and I come in with the power of God and when the power of God comes, the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want to talk just a minute about the concept of kingdom. You know, when you and I, in our culture and time frame, in our world, tend to think of kingdom, we tend to think of realms, areas, territories. If I were to say to you, um, uh, when you think about the United Kingdom, what comes to your mind? You all know where the United Kingdom is, right? <laughs> okay, just, just, just checking. Uh, how, how up are you on your geography? Um, so when you think about the United Kingdom, uh, you might think of the Queen. But more likely, at least this is what comes to my mind, I, I see a world map. And in that map, I see uh, England and, and Ireland, and I see those British Isles up there, and, and I think about... Uh, particularly the time in, in British colonialism that's certainly shrunk by now, but I think of other areas of the world where they had colonized. But I, I think predominantly of that uh, area, you know, in, in northwestern uh, Europe, up there on the other side of the English Channel, you know, where the country is. And we tend to think in terms of a territory that's ruled by a king or queen. There are kingdoms in the world today. Uh, Great Britain is... Uh, certainly more like uh, a, a socialistic kind of democracy than than an absolute monarchy, but um, 
they still kind of play the game. If you go to Saudi Arabia, that's that's a real kingdom. The, the, the king in Saudi Arabia is in charge and his family, and they own everything. They own all the land. They own all the oil. They own everything there is to own, and they own all the people, more or less. I mean, they're, they're their subjects, and, and they're in charge. Uh, I remember um, when, when Dewey was home one time, uh, and we were talking, and he said, uh, one day I drove by and I saw all these brand new pickup trucks. He says there were just hundreds of them, just filled like acres and acres of brand new pickup trucks. And he says, I was with one of my Saudi friends, and I said, what in the world are all those trucks, all these brand new trucks? He said, oh, the, the king bought a bunch of them and ordered them, and he's going to give them to everybody, you know, that needs a truck. And I was like, wow, <laughs> okay. Well, he owns all the money, he owns all the land, he can order as many trucks as he wants, he's got all the oil, and he can give it to whoever he wants to give it to. He is the king, you know, he's in charge. And, you know, you can kind of picture where Saudi Arabia is, and you say, well, that's the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We have a tendency to think in terms of realms and territories. But in the scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term kingdom has more to do with power and authority than it has to do with territory or realms. It has to do with power and authority. And when Jesus comes in the Gospels announcing that the kingdom of God has come, what he is saying is the power of God is being manifest in your midst. The power of God has come. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, because the power of God came first to the Jews in Palestine and then exploded into the uh, Gentile world as the gospel message spread, the power of God accompanied it. And so, the essence of the gospel is that the power of God becomes manifest, that overpowers the enemy, and delivers people from his control. You think of what, and I mentioned this earlier, what salvation really means. It doesn't simply mean that we are saved from sin to go to heaven. In fact, the truth is, heaven is just simply the natural result of being saved. It's not the goal, it's the inevitable result of people who have been redeemed from the power of darkness, who have been bought out of that dark control, under the control of God, who have been liberated in their spirit, for whom the power of sin has been broken by the power of the cross and the power of God, and who are now truly free, and who are enabled by the power of God to live transformed lives, as servants of the living God, following Him, loving Him, trusting Him, obeying Him, and inevitably one day living with Him forever. You know, heaven is the inevitable result 
of those whose lives have been impacted by the power of God. So Jesus is ministering and coming across people who are being held by the strong man. And his armor is protecting him. And he has his possessions within his grasp and he's holding them tightly. And Jesus comes in and notice that he doesn't attack the house, he doesn't attack the walls, he doesn't attack the the, the barricades or anything like that. He goes right to the heart of the strong man. Because he's more powerful and he overpowers him. He takes away his armor. He breaks his hold. He throws him out. And he releases those who have been held in bondage. And he sets them free. And as Jesus explains this, he comes to verse 23 and he makes a very powerful statement. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now you may remember another place in Scripture that's kind of interesting where someone comes to Jesus and says, um, we saw this guy baptizing in your name, these people they were baptizing in your name, and and they were preaching in your name, and and we tried to stop them, and and, and what, what should we do about that? And Jesus says, leave them alone. If they're not against us, they're for us. Wait a minute, he just said if they're not for us, they're against us. Which is it? Well, the context has a lot of difference here. If someone's preaching the truth of the gospel message and baptizing in the name of Jesus, don't get in their way. Just because they're not following around the disciples doesn't mean that they're not proclaiming the message of Christ. That's even what Paul said with some people that weren't necessarily savory characters. But he said they're preaching Christ out of strife and envy. He said, I'm still going to rejoice because they're still preaching the gospel. Maybe their lives have some issues, but they're still preaching the gospel. I'm happy about that. People need to hear the truth. But when we're talking about this conflict, this warfare that we're in, this this spiritual confrontation where the power of God is going up against the power of Satan, then in this context, Jesus makes it plain that the one who is not with him is against him. And the one who does not gather with him scatters. I mentioned in our notes, uh, actually in the next section, but I'm skipping ahead for a moment. The tragic reality of autonomy is there is no real autonomy. Friends, listen, in the spiritual battle, and we're in it. You don't even have to know you're in it to be in it. You're in it. You got born. That made you a combatant. You're in the battle. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. We have a God who loves us and wants to save us. 
And we are confronted with this reality. We were designed by God to be filled by His Spirit and led by His Spirit. Adam and Eve were made in such a way, notice how God shaped and fashioned Adam and and Eve from the same essence, that He shaped him from the dust which was of the earth and breathed into him the breath of God, which was the Spirit, and he became a living soul connected to both the earth and the heavenly realm, filled with the Spirit of God, the breath of God, to be led and move in union and harmony with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled and turned their back on God and chose to go a different way, the Holy Spirit, in essence, was evicted from their lives. And their house was left empty to be filled by the powers of darkness. They were not free. They were not in charge of their destiny. They were now in bondage to Satan. You only have one of two choices in this life. You're either going to be under the control of God and the leadership of His Holy Spirit, or you're going to be under the control and the direction of Satan. You will never be under your own control. You do not have that option. We are not designed that way. We are made to be in a dependent relationship upon the living God. And if we evict Him from our lives, we will become in a dependent relationship under the powers of darkness. There is no such thing as complete autonomy. This plays into the story in just a moment in in a very significant way. But I think it's very important that we recognize this and, and that we deal with it with reality. If you're not going to be on God's team, you are on Satan's team. There's not any middle ground. There's no neutrality. You cannot be indifferent. You can only choose to follow God or suffer the consequences. And so Jesus explains in the context of this battle, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not gathering with me, you're scatter, you're scattering. And then he tells us that when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Let me just say, uh, parenthetically, someone asked me on the way out uh, from the 8 o'clock service, why is it that these spirits wander in arid places? I don't know. Um, And and, and the Bible doesn't ever tell us. So can you just leave it at that? (laughs) I've, I've had all kinds, I've read all kinds of explanations as to why this is true, and most of them get really weird. And I'm just here to tell you, 
this question is never answered, so I'm not going to answer it this morning. But I didn't want you to think I didn't know it or, or was ignoring it or just didn't want to tell you. It, there's just there's no explanation for that, so let that one go. But it goes out and passes through desert places, arid places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now listen, if it's bad news to learn that you cannot be self-controlled, and by that I don't mean exercise self-control, that's a fruit of the Spirit, but that you can't control your destiny, that you can't be the master of your own life. This is also very sobering news. That you can, that you can come to God and find deliverance and find freedom and find victory and have the demons cast out, as it were, and have your house cleaned. Everything swept and put in order. And once again, if you're not with Jesus, you're against Him. If you do not allow God to fill that area, if you do not allow the Holy Spirit to now move in and bring His godly influence and His supernatural power to enable you to live unto God, if your house has been cleaned and swept and it's empty, Jesus says eventually this spirit that was cast out is going to come back looking to see if he can get back in. And when he finds that the house has been all tidied up, and it's clean, and it's empty. Well, while he was out there wandering around, he met some buddies. And they were looking for a place to live. And so he goes back and he tells them, Hey, listen, that place I used to live, it's all cleaned up. It's, it's, man, it's amazing. I left it in a mess, but it's straightened out. Let's all go back. And they all move in. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. I titled the message, Nature Abhors a Vacuum. And I did that for a reason. It, it, you can argue uh, or not the physics of it. I, I'm not meaning to go in that direction. But simply to say, once again, that, that there is, as Augustine put it, a God-shaped void in the heart of every man. And we have no rest until we find our rest in Him. We have this spot inside that's made for God. You can think of it as your house. And inside there's a place that's designed for God's abode. And if He isn't there, it will not stay empty long. The enemy will come and occupy. And if you have confronted some issue in your life, and you have been cleaned up and swept out and polished, and boy, you're looking good. 
and you fail to invite the abode of the Spirit of God to come and live there, you are running the risk of ending up in a worse state than you did in the beginning. Um, years ago when I was uh, at school, a couple of professors that um, had a deliverance ministry took me along with some other students under their wing to, uh, to mentor in the area of demonic deliverance. And um, working with them, we, we kind of learned how to deal with, with people who were struggling with demonic problems. And then there came a time when the administration of the school changed and a new administration came in and forbade them to have any more dealings with deliverance work because they had the theological mindset that Christians couldn't have demonic problems, so therefore it was all foolishness anyway, and uh, they were prohibited from, from being engaged in that. So I'm only saying that to say there was this time period when, when these men who had... Uh, had a fairly effective ministry, uh, at least it appeared to be fairly effective, were, were forbidden to conduct that ministry uh, on penalty of losing their job. And um, it was a time for reflection. And I can remember being over uh, one evening at Dr. Sproul's house, not, not the one you guys know about from the writings. <laughs> this Dr. Sproul was a thoroughgoing Arminian, not a Calvinist of any dimension, and uh, so I was over at his house, and, and he, was, uh, he was kind of depressed, and he was thinking about, um, he was looking back over the, the students and the people that he had helped be released from various and sundry bondages in their lives. And reflecting on the fact that, that, that some of them, in fact many of them, had gone back to their former sins. They had not maintained their freedom. And that was troubling. And rightfully so. I also look back on a number of years of deliverance work and drew some of the same conclusions. People would get free because, honestly, people don't like the consequences of bondage. I mean, if you can't speak and you can't hear, you don't like that. But whatever got you in that position, eh, you may not be so uh, opposed to that. It's kind of like counseling. And one of the reasons why I don't do an awful lot of pastoral counseling anymore, and some of you that have known me for a very long time, that used to occupy probably the majority of my week. I'd spend 20, 25 hours in, in counseling. And then I began to realize that I was not seeing change in people. I was spending a lot of time and not seeing a lot of results. And as I kind of reviewed the situation, I realized that the problem was is that people who come for counseling most often want someone 
to sympathize with them. They want someone to understand them. But more than that, to, to supportively understand, oh, that's okay. Everybody has weaknesses, and that's all right. I, I understand why you're such a jerk. You know, it's okay. You're just human. You can't help how you are. Or someone that will take sides with them. Yeah, the people in your life are really pretty raunchy. I agree with you. There's just no way you can be godly in the face of all the people you have to deal with. There was somebody that will agree with them and take sides with them. Hardly anyone walks in the door of any counselor's office and says, I'm here because I'm broken. In fact, I'm a mess. And I need to change. Would you please help me find out what's wrong with me so that I can be different? Seldom do people have that intent. And the same is true with deliverance. Do you remember how Jesus asked the man at the, uh, at the uh, pool, do you want to get well? And he started whining about something about, you know, the waters and couldn't get any help. And the question was, do you want to get well? Many people don't want to get well. They don't like the result, but they don't want to deal with the root of the problem. What Jesus is in essence saying here is, if God has been gracious to you and cleaned up your house and swept it out and put things in order, you need to be certain that you have given yourself over to Him without reservation. That you have invited Him to come live there and give you direction and give you guidance and empower you for godliness, because if you don't do that, and you try to run on your own steam, you, you feel good, everything's shiny and new, and you've kind of got your addictions under control, and oh, I'm going to tear it up now. Yes, you are. You're going to hit the wall, and you're going to hit it hard, and you may find that the end result is worse than where you started. Because the devil doesn't play with kid gloves. He does not put on the big mitts. He goes bare knuckle. And he's out to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. That's his purpose. And he doesn't give one whit about your life. He wants to smash you into the ground and leave you in the dust. And he plays for keeps. So if God has blessed you by cleaning up your life, you need to make certain that you invite him to possess it, to control it, to direct it, to guide you. So I want to ask you, as you think about it this morning... What has a grip on you from which you need to be freed? You need to be released. What, what's holding you in bondage? Are you willing to say, Lord, I need deliverance? 
I'm not going to get hung up on whether Christians can or can't have demons. That's not even the point. The point is, if you're under their control, you've got a problem. I don't care where they're living. They're influencing you. You've got a problem. You don't even need demons to get in trouble. You can do that very well on your own. You've got your own sin nature. You don't even have to have help. You can accomplish that by yourself. Are you willing to come to God and say, God, I need to be, I need to be cleaned up. I need the one who is stronger, Lord Jesus, to overpower the strong man. Take away the armor and set me free. I need to be released. I want to be freed. And when you clean up my house, I want you to occupy it. I want you to live there. I just want to point out one thing in closing. It really has nothing to do with the message, but it's here, and and I can't pass it over. Verse 27, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. This is the only time in the Gospel. It's the only time in the Gospel. When someone in the crowd desires to venerate Mary, the only time, if it was the intent of Jesus Christ for his people to venerate and honor his mother, this is the golden opportunity to endorse it. This is the moment. It's right here. He could have said, yes, you are right on. She is blessed and you ought to honor her all of your life. She is blessed. But that's not what he said. What he said was, on the contrary... On the contrary, it's not about her. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Namely, what I have to say. Those are the ones that are blessed. And so, you know, when when you're sharing with your friends and they're talking about the veneration and exaltation of Mary... I'm not suggesting you become cantankerous and ornery and argumentative. But I just want you to know the truth. That Jesus had a golden opportunity to endorse the practice. And he didn't do it. In fact, he said, on the contrary. That's not what I want you doing. I want you honoring the word of God and obeying it. Has God cleaned up your house? Has he swept it out and put things in order? Are you all tidy this morning? Or are you tending to get cluttered up and messy again? You got people moving in that you thought were gone for good? Did you ask somebody else to live there and take over? Have you invited the Holy Spirit to possess those areas of you that have been under the control of the enemy?
There's no middle ground. You're either following Jesus or you're following Satan. You're never following yourself because you don't have that choice to make. Father, I ask you to bless your word to us this morning, open our eyes to see it, and the Lord lead us in that obedience, that love, that commitment, and in that invitation for you to fill and control our lives. May we not only be empty and clean, but filled and restored by your Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Carrie, where are you, brother? Should we just dismiss? We'll just do that. Lord bless you.